my flat, took off. I thought, well, now I get to kind of relax. Take off. All that toxicity went with me. I don't know why, but it went with me. And then at about mile 20, I had another flat tire, which was really frustrating. So I thought, okay, that's all right. It's just Saturday. Tomorrow will be better. Uh, I got up uh, to come over here. I did some last-minute work, a couple of changes on my message. And uh, so I go out to get in the car. My car won't start. (laughs) You're laughing at me, laughing at my misery. The car won't start. I I come here. I I, I just jump on my bike. My wife was upset because I went without my helmet. But uh, I jump on my my, my, uh, well, I was going to jump on my road bike, but my road bike had another flat tire. So I get on my my rock hopper, my uh, uh, trail bike, and I, I take off down here. And, uh, and so I'm, I'm going to, I take off the slideshow off my, well, I go to take the slideshow off my computer. Sure enough, I can't get the thumb drive to work with my, my computer. Then I tried to print off my notes, and I couldn't get my notes to print off. So uh, the, the funny thing is, on any given Sunday, uh, all of us come, this, fortunately this week, all I woke up to was gunfire and 60 years of age. That's all I woke up to. Uh, but, you know, the, the thing is, is that all of us come to church and we come with a different set of circumstances. And uh, a lot of you here today, you come here, life is good, uh, you're, you're just, you know you're blessed and you're rejoicing in it. And some of us, you're coming, and today was your week when you couldn't get the car to start. You had two flat tires, and, and now you get to listen to me to top all that off. All of us come with a different set of circumstances. Uh, a lot of you here, you're here from... Uh, Harbor Community Church, and we're really glad you're here. But not being able to turn on your power could feel frustrating. So we're really grateful you're here. But all of us come with a different set of circumstances and uh, a different, uh, kind of a different context. And, uh, and today what we're going to be looking at is we're going to be looking at, at the path to revitalization. I don't know how many of you came here today needing uh, needing spiritual revitalization, the revitalization of your faith. But today what we're going to do is we're going to kick off a brand new series based upon 1 Corinthians chapters 1 through 8 uh, and, uh, on, on uh, the path to spiritual revitalization or the, to uh, a revitalized faith. Uh, let me tell you a little bit about, um, let me tell you a little bit uh, about the city of Corinth. Uh, most of you here, if you've gone to church very long, you've probably heard of 1 Corinthians. By the way, anybody know how many letters were written to the church in Corinth? Two. Anybody want to come up with a different number? Actually, there were four. There were four. In 1 Corinthians chapter, I can't remember which chapter it is, Paul refers to an earlier letter that he had sent. Okay? And then in, chap, or in, in 2 Corinthians, he refers to another uh, another uh, letter that he wrote beside those two. So actually, 1 Corinthians is 2 Corinthians, and 2 Corinthians is 4 Corinthians. Are you confused? All right, good, good. I'm glad I could help you with something. Uh, let me tell you a little bit about the city of Corinth. city of Corinth, can I get the map up here? Uh, city of Corinth is, is located, well, it's located right there. Uh, it's, it's located on what's called an isthmus. Okay, I can barely say that word. I grew up in Arkansas. I had to look it up several times to figure it out. <laughs> but an isthmus is, uh, is, is a land bridge. It's a land bridge between two larger bodies of land. 
And so on this isthmus, it's called the, the Isthmus of Corinth. Uh, down south, you have what's called the Peloponnesian Peninsula. And up north is the, the, the main part of Greece. And so what made Corinth special is that it was, uh, it was kind of, a, it was kind of a, a, a very important trade center. It was a crossroads uh, for the ancient world. Uh, it was a crossroads north and south. We were traveling from northern Greece to southern Greece. But it was also a crossroads east and west. Uh, that, that, that to the west, you have the Adriatic Sea. And, and what you can't see real well is, is uh, along that, you actually have two bodies of water. One of them is called the Gulf of Corinth. The other one is called, I can't remember what it's called, but it's called something, uh, the, Saronic, the Saronic Gulf. The Saronic Gulf. And it feeds into the Adriatic. But what that did is it made it a very important crossroads. A lot of times, what, what, rather than trying to sail all the way around Greece, ships would actually pull into the isthmus there of Corinth, and they would actually drag their ships across the ground on skids to the other side. And so it was a, a very important crossroads. It was conquered by the Romans around 165 B.C., uh, and then it was rebuilt by a guy named uh, Julius Caesar. Anybody ever hear Julius Caesar? Okay. Uh, it was rebuilt by Julius Caesar in about 64 uh, B.C. And, uh, but it was, a very, it was, it was, the, it was kind of the, the central hub of government for that part of the Roman Empire at that time. It was a Roman city, uh, and people had Roman citizenship there. So it was a very uh, important city. It was also the center of, anybody ever hear of the Olympics? The Olympic Games, okay, most of us have. There was another set of games called the Isthmian Games, and they were as important in Greece as the Olympic Games were. It was very, very important. And what they would do is they'd have all these different athletic contests, but they would also have things like plays. They would have oratory was like um, public speaking was something that they really valued. It was really, really important. The Greeks really focused in a lot on wisdom. And, and that's the reason we read so much about, about Greek philosophy. But a little bit of background that I think is important for kind of understanding uh, what, what the, the book of Corinth, uh, the, the book of 1 Corinthians is about. Um, with 1 Corinthians, uh, also uh, something to, to, to know about is this, is the church in Corinth was a church in trouble. It was a church in a lot of trouble. By the way, I don't know if you know this or not, but I'm going to tell you, okay? By the way, every church is in trouble, just so you know this. Solana Valley Church is in trouble. We are. Uh, Harbor Community Church is in trouble. Father's House is in trouble. The most celebrated churches in the world today are in trouble. You know why? Because they're filled with people. And people have trouble in their lives. The, the, the real issue isn't, are we in trouble or are we not in trouble? The real issue is, what kind of trouble are we in? How much trouble are we in? And how are we facing that trouble? Now, if you don't get that, and you don't get that, you miss something hugely important for understanding the book of Corinthians. Because what Paul says is he doesn't say, abandon ship because your church is all messed up. That's not what Paul says. I mean, if you were ever going to abandon ship on a church, the church you would abandon ship on was the church in Corinth. They had serious, serious problems. Sometimes 
I'll hear people say stuff like this. All I need is all I need is is my Bible and Jesus. That's all I need. Uh, sometimes I hear people say stuff like that. That is very unbiblical, and it is very un-Jesus-like. Because, see, Jesus is invested in building his church. And the Bible talks to us about the importance of being a part of a church body. A, a church body where we are living out what unity looks like, which is a lot of what we're going to look at today. See, when you abandon the church, you abandon the New Testament concept of unity, and you abandon the Jesus principle of humility. See, if I'm going to abandon the church, I don't have to be humble. If I'm going to abandon the church, I don't have to work on unity. Why? Because it's all about me. And Jesus is all about me. But guess what? It's not all about me. It's all about Jesus. And so what what Paul doesn't do is he doesn't tell the Corinthians, you should just abandon ship. You're you're a church that's filled with immorality in a city filled with immorality. One of your church members is involved in an incestuous relationship with his father's wife. Paul doesn't say abandon ship. What Paul does is he charts for them a course to revitalization. So that's what we want to look at today. Today what I want us to do is I'm going to read for you a small part uh, of 1 Corinthians chapter 1 and uh, in uh, verses 10 through 17. And if you have your Bible, I'd like to encourage you to open it. If you didn't bring your Bible, if you have your iPhone, just open up an iPhone, you know, a phone app that has the Bible on it. But I really think that having the Scriptures in front of you is absolutely essential. More important than listening to anything I say is actually hearing what God says and looking at his word. I'm going to be preaching from the uh, English Standard Version today. I decided in 1 Corinthians, we just finished up the book of Matthew, and I used the NIV. I decided this series, I'm going to use the English Standard Version because I haven't preached from it for a long time. 1 Corinthians chapter 1, beginning in verse 10. Verses 1 through 9, Paul gives a greeting prayer of thanksgiving for the church in Corinth. And then in verse 10, he says this. He says, I appeal to you, brothers, by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that all of you agree, and that there be no divisions among you, that you be united in the same mind and the same judgment. For it has been reported to me by Chloe's people. Who were Chloe's people? Chloe was probably uh, an important leader in the church in Corinth, well known to Paul. Paul actually started the church in Corinth. We read about that in Acts chapter 18. And, uh, and so Chloe sends news to Paul about some of the problems that were happening in the church of Corinth. And so what Paul says, hey, it's, it's been reported to me by Chloe's people that there is quarreling among you, my brothers. What I mean is that each of you says, I follow Paul. Paul founded the church in Corinth. That kind of makes sense that there might be some people who considered themselves to be disciples of Paul. Uh, Some of you say, I'm a Paul. Or, I follow Apollos. Apollos was, uh, he was from uh, the city of Alexandria. Uh, was a very, very important city in the ancient world, a university city. He was a very, very gifted orator. 
Remember how the, the Greeks loved uh, oratory and public speaking? Well, he was a fantastic public speaker. He was kind of like the second pastor of the church in Corinth. We read a, a little bit about that in 1 Corinthians chapter 19. Uh, some of you say, um, each one of you says, I follow Paul, or I follow Apollos, or I follow Cephas, or I follow Francis Chan, or I follow Craig Rochelle, or I follow Jeff Hollinsworth. That's who I follow. I follow Gary. Oh, that sounds creepy. But then there's that really spiritual group. Uh, I follow Christ. Is Christ divided? Is Christ divided? Was Paul crucified for you? Or were you baptized in the name of Paul? I thank God that I baptized none of you except Crispus and Gaius so that no one may say that you were baptized in my name. Wow. Now, folks, what you need to understand here is more important then the name of the person who baptized you is the name of the person whose name you were baptized into. Paul says, I thank God that I baptized none of you except Crispus and Gaius, so that no one may say that you were baptized in my name. I did baptize also the household of Stephanus. Beyond that, I don't know whether I baptized anyone else. For Christ did not send me to baptize but to preach the gospel. And uh, not with words of eloquent wisdom. Underline those words. Underline those words. Those words are so important. For Christ did not send me to baptize, but to preach the gospel, and not with words of eloquent wisdom. See, what the Greeks valued was wisdom, philosophy. Oratory, public speaking. Paul says, Christ didn't send me to baptize, but to preach the gospel, and not with the words of eloquent wisdom, lest the cross of Christ be emptied of its power. See, the message of the gospel and the power of the gospel is the cross. It doesn't depend upon how eloquent Paul was, Apollos, me, anybody else. It's all about Jesus. It's about what Jesus did on the cross. A few thoughts for you. Well, first of all, nah, I'm going to skip that part. Let's skip the slide that takes us through 1 Corinthians, because I already did. All right? A um, little bit about my life. Uh, now, I don't know about you, but in my life, I have a few favorites. Anybody have any favorites? Yeah? I have a favorite football team. Noreen does too. The Patriots. We got one back here, the Cowboys. The Niners, a few of you. Raiders. I hear the, the Traders, the Las Vegas Traders. The Arkansas Razorbacks, they won a game, finally. They, their third game in two years. It's amazing. They're rebounding. Uh, I have a few favorites. I have a favorite football team, the Razorbacks. I have a favorite hobby, cycling. Cycling, when my tires have air on them. Um, I have a favorite cookie, oatmeal pecan cookies. I ate eight of them last night. 
I had one for breakfast. They were fantastic. Uh, I have a favorite cake. We call it Nana's chocolate cake. It's my mom's recipe. It is incredible. Uh, Cass made one for, for Joy for her birthday, and then I ate it. Um, I have a favorite breakfast. I'm going to eat it tomorrow morning. It's called Swedish pancakes. Uh, I have, did you notice I have a lot of favorites that relate to food? I do like to eat. I'm not going to lie. I do like to eat. That's why I ride. Um, I have a favorite day of the week. It's not Sunday. As much as I love being with you guys, as much as I love coming here to worship together, I'll be honest with you. My favorite day of the week is Friday with my wife. I love my, I, I love my, my Friday with my wife. I, I love being able to drive the back way together over to Napa and just kind of spend some time together and go to lunch and grab some coffee. Uh, that, for me, is life-giving. Um, I have a, a few favorite spiritual heroes. I do. I, I, those Harbor uh, Community Church, one of my heroes is my Uncle Jim. I talked a little bit about my Uncle Jim last week. One of my heroes growing up was my pastor, Bud Hart. And, and Bud Hart was not a great orator, but he, uh, he was a man who knew the scriptures. But what made Pastor Hart great for me is I always knew he loved me. I wish I could be as good a pastor as Pastor Hart. Um, another person who was great in my life, another favorite, uh, is a buddy of mine, um, Mike Johnson. When I was a high school student and was walking away from the Lord, God used Mike to help me get back on track. Um, uh, another favorite was um, my pastor in my young adult years, David Cotton. Again, Dr. Cotton wasn't a great order, but he knew the scriptures. And he loved me. Um, he, he, he did our wedding. Joy's in my wedding. He, he, he married us. Um, there, there's another favorite I have. His name is Joan Price. He and his wife Peggy, just the other day, they, they celebrated their 50th anniversary. And Joan and Peggy are favorites of Joy and mine because, uh, because they were encouragement for us in the early years of church planning when I didn't have a clue what I was doing and the really sad thing is I didn't even know what I didn't know uh, as a pastor. But they walked with us and they encouraged us and they supported us. There's nothing wrong with having favorites. Nothing wrong with having favorites. Until having favorites begins to divide the body of Christ. There's nothing wrong with having favorites until having favorites begins to eclipse the person of Jesus. If my favorite is more important to me than my Lord, I've got a serious problem. If my favorite is creating division in the body of Christ, by the way, there are some very, very divisive preachers and teachers in our world. By the way, and not just preachers and teachers, in our churches, there are some very, very divisive people. Folks, I want to be really kind to how I say this, but being divisive in a church um, there's just no place for it. It's, It's just, there's no place for it. 
I've watched people divide churches in the name of Jesus. That is unholy. It is ungodly. It is sin. It needs repentance. There's nothing wrong with having favorites until our favorites get in the way of us following Jesus together. In verse 10, we have this exhortation. In verse 10, we we have an exhortation, and we see the substance of Paul's exhortation, and we we see the authority by which he exhorts the Corinthians uh, then and us today. And in, in, in in verse 10, in verse 10, Paul says this. He says, I appeal to you, brothers, by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. I appeal to you, brothers, by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. Those words are really, really important. Because Paul is not appealing to you today. And Paul is not appealing to you this morning by his own authority. He's appealing to you by the authority of the Lord Jesus Christ. Verse 10, verse 10, I appeal to you, brothers, by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. By the way, 10 verses. We're 10 verses into 1 Corinthians. Do you know how many times Paul has named Jesus in the first 10 verses? This is the 10th time. If you want to know what 1 Corinthians is about, Just read the first ten verses and you'll kind of get the sense of what it's really about. It's really about Jesus. That's what it's about. Ten times in ten verses, Paul talks about Jesus. 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 He was very focused on Jesus. I tell you what, the more you focus on Jesus, the more you get things right. The more you focus on Jesus, the more you get your doctrine right. The more you, you focus on Jesus, you get your life right. And what Paul does is he says, I appeal to you, brothers, by the name, the authority of our Lord Jesus Christ, that you do what? That all of you agree that there be no divisions among you, but that you be united in the same mind in the same judgment. I like the way uh, the New Living Translation translates this verse. The New Living Translation says, I appeal to you, dear brothers and sisters, by the authority of our Lord Jesus Christ, to live in harmony with each other. You know, anybody here like music? Do you? Crosby, Stills, Nash, and Young. Anybody remember those guys? Do you remember how they could harmonize? See, what God loves is when we harmonize with one another the way they harmonized in music. Um, I appeal to you to live in harmony with each other, to let there be no divisions in the church, whether it be of one mind, united in thought and purpose. So I said it this way. Paul appeals to us by the authority of Christ to do three things that you live in harmony with one another, that you do away with all divisions, that you be perfectly united 
in thought and purpose. When you read through the Bible, when you read through the Bible, it's really interesting how much emphasis there is on unity. You know, on the night, the night of Jesus' betrayal, Jesus thought of you. On the night of the betrayal of the Lord Jesus Christ, the day before, the night before his crucifixion, he prayed for you. He saw every single one of you sitting here in this moment at this time. Some of you, you find that hard to imagine. But that might be because you have a limited imagination. But even if we are limited in our imagination, God is not a limited, he's not he's not limited in any way. Now, this is what the Bible tells us about the praying of Jesus. In verse 20 of, of John 17, Jesus says, I do not ask for these alone, meaning his, his 12 disciples. I do not ask for these alone, but also for those who believe in me through their word. Did you believe in Jesus? Did you believe? Do you believe in Jesus through the word of his apostles? Do you believe? Because if you believe, Jesus prayed for you. He prayed, I do not ask for these only, but also for those who believe in me through their word, that they may all be one. See, what Jesus prayed for you is he prayed for us that we would be one. Just as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they may also be in us, so that the world may believe that you sent me. By the way, the better we are at unity in humility, the better the world will know Jesus. Now, Jesus goes on in his prayer. He says, The glory that you have given me, I have given to them, that they may be one. See? Jesus was praying for is that we would be one. That they may be one even as we are one. I and them and you and me, that they may become perfectly one. Do you think one being one, us being one is important to Jesus? How can we be one if one of us decides all I need is Jesus in my Bible? You hear the pride, the arrogance, the self-centeredness and the selfishness of those words? See, God never intended us to be one alone. He intended us to be one together. Now, let me say that again. God never intended you to be one alone. He always prayed that we would be one together. That's what Jesus prayed for. That's what Jesus prayed for. That's what the Bible teaches. In Ephesians 4, the Bible says, I therefore, Paul writing, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you were called. What does it look like to walk in a manner worthy of uh, of our calling? With all humility. With all humility. Does Paul say with a little humility? No. He says, with all humility, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity, the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace. 
This is why it's so dangerous to divide a church, and especially dangerous to divide a church in the name of Jesus. The Bible is telling us that unity is important. The one of the most important things that we have to work on is our unity. In uh, verses 11 and 12, Paul identifies the problem. He says, it's been reported to me by Chloe's people. I always knew Chloe was a tattletale, didn't you? Uh, for it's been reported to me by Chloe's people that there's quarreling among you, my brothers. What I mean is that each one of you says, I follow Paul. Now remember, Paul was the founding pastor. Kind of makes sense. I follow Apollos. I follow Cephas, another name for Peter. I follow Christ. Uh, it's real interesting. I, I don't know if any of y'all are familiar with Chuck Swindoll or John MacArthur. Uh, both of them are really, really good Bible teachers. Don't necessarily buy hook, line, and sinker everything that they say, but I feel like they are faithful teachers of the Scriptures. Uh, real interesting. They, uh, both of them, talk about what they call the Christ faction, and they believe that the Christ faction, and by the way, I, I've read a few commentaries, and almost all of them agree with this. John Stott is the one who is a little bit different. But, but almost all of them agree that probably the most difficult group in Corinth was the group who smugly said, I follow Jesus. Uh, Swinnall writes about it. Actually, I won't read you what he says. MacArthur, he says this. He says, probably the most pious and self-righteous seem to think that they had a special claim on Christ. They had the right name, but it is clear from Paul's accusation that they did not have the right spirit. Perhaps, like some Christ-only groups today, they felt they had no need for human instructors. Despite the Lord's specific provision for an appointment of human preachers, teachers, and other leaders in this church. There's another guy named David Pryor. Uh, David Pryor, I don't expect you to, to know who he is, but he's a British evangelical pastor to a few churches, one in London, another in Oxford, and then another in Cape Town. Where's Nicole? Uh, Nicole's from Cape Town. So, uh, but... Uh, He's pastored a few churches, written a few books, written a couple of commentaries. But David Pryor talks about this Christ party and what it looks like in our world today. He says the interesting point about such a Christ party is that they tend to sooner rather than later hive off and form their own church, mainly because they they come eventually to feel that the average local church is not spiritual enough. Now, folks... If there was ever an unspiritual church that you could justify hiding off from, it would have been Corinth. If you were ever going to hive off of a church because of its unhealthiness, the church that you would hive off of is the Corinthian church. That's why Paul tells them, oh, it's worthless, it's useless, there's no hope. Hive off and form your own church. No. What... what Paul says, you need to get to work on the reason you're so divided. Um, um, Trying to think of where to go with this. I'll just go straight to the end. I, I do want to make one comment because Paul talks about, he talks about, you know, that he's grateful he didn't baptize anybody. 
Anybody got a question about this? Never occur to you to think why I ask this question? I mean, remember, Jesus commanded us to go and make disciples, baptizing people. And yet Paul is saying, I haven't really bothered myself with baptizing people. Um, I'll just share with you uh, one thought. Uh, Warren Wiersbe uh, says that that in, in these verses, Paul was not devaluing baptism. He was putting baptism into its proper perspective because of the errant views of the Corinthians making too much of the people by whom they were baptized. So what he's doing is he's not devaluing baptism. He's elevating the proclamation of the gospel. And so he says, For Christ did not send me to baptize, but to preach the gospel. Not with words of eloquent wisdom, lest the cross of Christ be emptied by its power. Um, I prepared three sermons on this text. I did. So I think I should probably end it. But I want to say something. In verse 18, Paul says this, The word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing. The word of the cross is folly. Remember the Greeks prided themselves in wisdom. The word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing, those who are dying, those who are facing eternal destruction, those who are facing eternal condemnation and judgment. The word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it's the power of God. In in verse 20, he says, Where is the one who is wise? Where is the scribe? Where is the debater of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? And, And then what Paul does, down in verse 26, he says, Consider your calling. Who called you? God did. And what Paul says is consider your calling. Consider your calling. Uh, He says, not many. Now what he doesn't say is he doesn't say not any. He says not many. That little M is very important. He says not many were power, or excuse me, not many of you were wise according to worldly standards. Not many were powerful. Not many were of noble birth. But God. But God. But God chose what is foolish. See, it, it's God chose the foolish. God chose what is weak. God chose what is low and despised in the world. God chose the foolish to shame the wise. He chose the weak to shame the strong. He chose what is low and despised. Even things that are not, to bring to nothing things that are. Why? Verse 29. So that no human being might boast in the presence of God. And because of Him, because of God, you are in Christ Jesus. It's not because of me I'm in Christ Jesus. It's not because of my 
my power. It's not because of my wisdom. It's not because of my pedigree and who my parents were. It's because of God who chose me. Uh, Folks, sometimes people really struggle with this idea of God choosing. And and so I'm just going to, I'm going to tell you a story that I've shared a few times, but it, I think it deserves being retold. When I was in seventh grade, I was almost the worst basketball player in my PE class. Now, I say I was almost the worst because there was one other guy, Joe Barnes, who was worse than I was. But next to Joe, I was the worst. And whenever it came time to choose the teams... Put us on a bike. I would have, I would outran all those guys. Okay, but on on a basketball court, I was a, I just wasn't that good. And whenever they would choose up teams, the last person they would always choose would choose with you, Joe. And I always hated it when Joe didn't come to school, because it meant the last person chosen was me. That's what it meant. What does it mean when God chooses you? What does it mean when God chooses me? When I was in seventh grade, my seventh grade PE coach, uh, Coach Evans, he he really just wanted to play basketball. He really didn't like kids that much. But, you know, he, he was a PE coach. And what my seventh grade PE coach would do is he would choose Joe and he would choose me, and we would beat every team in our PE class. See, Coach Evans chose me, not because he needed me to win. Coach Evans chose me because I needed Coach Evans to win. God didn't choose you or me because of our wisdom. God didn't choose you or me because of how powerful we are. God didn't choose you or me because of how noble we are. God chose us because we needed God. And because of him, you are in Christ Jesus, who became to us wisdom from God, righteousness, sanctification, and redemption, so that as it is written... Let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. That's what makes unity possible. Is when we consider our calling, and when we realize it's not really about us, it's really about Him, and when we quit boasting in ourselves and what we have, and we fix our boast in Jesus, who is our righteousness, our wisdom, our sanctification, our redemption. Let's pray. God, we want to, well, first of all, we want to praise you and we want to thank you. We want to thank you, God, because you chose us, not because of how powerful we are, because of how smart we are, because of um, our pedigree, who our parents are, our grandparents. You chose us, God, not because you needed us, but because we needed you. You chose us and you saved us. And for that, God, we are hugely, hugely grateful. Lord, today what we want to do is we want to get better at working on unity. We want to get better at loving and serving one another. Uh, We want to get better 
of becoming one in Jesus. And we pray this in Christ's name and for your glory. Amen.